you've got a faculty meeting, say, and you happen to know that this faculty member's kid just scored a touchdown in the local high school game, and, and you give them a shout out. That means so much and goes so far. It doesn't get on their CV, but it makes that cohesiveness. everybody, Kim Skorupski, your host from Hopkins, and I'm looking at Dr. Peter Denson from Iowa. Hi, Dr. Peter. Hi, Kim. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on your show. Well, I have to thank Dr. Rachel Salas, our professor of neuro- neurology who does sleep disorders. She's just a real creative, energetic genius here at Hopkins. And Rachel said, you have to interview Dr. Peter Denson. This guy is a genius on coaching and leadership, and he's an absolute shoe-in for really contributing to this podcast. So I have to thank Dr. Sallers for getting Dr. Denson here. So Dr. Denson, will you please tell everybody who you are and what you do at Iowa? Well, boy, I don't know how much time you have for that, Kim, but uh, <laughs> I'd like to give a shout out to my uh, starting my career at Hopkins as a medical student and a resident there on the Osler service and how much I owe in my career to my time at Hopkins. I'll skip all the little interim steps that got me to Iowa, but I've been in Iowa now for almost 40 years. About 50% of that time has been in higher medical administration as the first dean of students of curriculum and curriculum, head of medicine, and then as the executive dean for the college. And when I was the executive dean, we were hiring a lot of different people, and some of these people needed coaching, and I got interested in coaching, and I've always been interested in mentoring, and it gives me a lot of pleasure. So at some point in that, uh, I decided that I'd had enough, and I went into um, part-time work. And as part of the part-time work, I continued coaching, and, and one of my colleagues gave me a book on transitions instead of the usual kind of, you know, funny gifts about here's some depends in your retirement and that kind of thing. And it was the usual kind of thing, you know, when you retire, you got to have a hobby. You can't just have nothing. Don't make any major decisions in your first year. But it got me interested and I started going down the transition rabbit hole and getting into what's known about transitions in the literature. And I saw that what I had previously thought were very independent kinds of interactions when I was helping students or helping trainees or division directors, department heads, and deans in this coaching process, I didn't really see much of a connect, but the transition theory sort of provided the connection that I was looking for mainstream. That is, that's really great. So I just want to preface my my question because I'm going to ask you to tell us about transition theory and the you know the major components of that framework. But I just have I have to do a shout out to our dean Paul Rothman was at Iowa. I lived in Chicago and did RAGBRAI, the Register's annual great bike ride across Iowa, and fell in love with Iowa and all the pork chops and corn of the cob and the field of dreams. And so it seems like everything good comes from Iowa. I just I just can't help but, but start there. So that said, that off my chest, what about transition theory? Tell us about well, I can't really talk about transition theory with that kind of transition from you. <laughs> I know, drop the transition. I mean, because on that you know, transition. I was, Paul Rothman 
followed me as the head of the Department of Medicine. Then he came into the dean's office and I worked for him. I was his executive dean. And uh, Paul and I are great friends. And in fact, he's the one who introduced me to Rachel. So that's a, you know, going around the circle kind of small world. Yeah. So what was your question? Transition theory. I mean, tell us, I think the core components of this, what really got you, you know, stuck on this transition theory and how does it make sense to you? I want to learn more about it. Yeah. So, so a lot of my mentoring and coaching work has been done with leaders. And I've learned that although it may differ from one institution to another, people are chosen for leadership positions or position meaning that often institutions use proxies for leadership. Sometimes this works out well and sometimes it works out less well. And and what I learned from that was that when the proxy is not accurate, that coaching can be very helpful in reorienting individuals and saving their careers, so to speak. And part of that disconnect can be both from the individual and from the institution's failure to recognize that assuming a new leadership role represents a transition. So, you know, when you think about transitions, the way I like to think about them is that, uh, you know, what is a transition? Well, a transition is a change from one state or condition to another. And they it can be simple or they can be complex. And a simple one is just things we do every day. We go from one meeting to another, we transition and we have to adapt to whatever that meeting is going to be. It's just usually the environment changes, but it's the changing of gears is very predictable. But the kind of transition we're talking about is a transformational transition. And in this change, it's not the environment that's changing. It's the person who's changing and the environment can stay the same or it can change. And, you know, if you really want an example of this, uh, being a chem major, then, uh, you know, a physical chemistry, I like to think in these terms. And uh, so it's ice to water and water to water vapor. So that's where I've started, you know, the transformational uh, kinds of transitions. They're, they're really interesting and they involve reorientation and redefinition for the individual in the institution. They involve cognitive, emotional, psychosocial, and behavioral adjustments. So they're, that's what makes them complex. And from a coaching standpoint uh, or helping people succeed, that's what makes them so fascinating. Um, and there are three phases uh, that uh, from where I come from, an ending, a period of uncertainty, and a new beginning. Is that your understanding too, Kim? Because I gather you know something about these things. Well, I've not thought about it in those, you know, discrete kind of stages and ending a period of uncertainty and the new beginning. So this is a new way of thinking about, you know, the transition. But, you know, as you were talking, I'm putting myself in the shoes of leaders and the shoes of faculty members and thinking about the various transitions across the life course of an academic medicine faculty member. And I think where we get ourselves, can get ourselves into trouble is making a lot of assumptions about the next thing, whatever that, you know, you said, you know, distinct, distinguishing from environmental changes and transformations to person changes. And we always think about in our leadership programs, leaders, leader change thyself. And I, and I'm seeing the challenge of that transition is making assumptions that either 
I don't want that next thing because that does not appeal to me without recognizing that I can get to that leadership position and change it into what I want. So seeing something as it is and assuming that that's the way it must be or the flip side of a possible transition of thinking, oh, that's an easy thing. I can do that, no problem. And that level of arrogance of making an assumption that there's nothing to that without realizing the hidden iceberg underneath that, say, leader position of like, oh, I can do what Denson does. That seems pretty easy. Look at him. It's got water off a duck. You got that. And then you get into Peter Denson's role and you go, oh, I had no idea it was this difficult. So that's what I'm thinking when you're talking about transitions of the complete you know, opposite ways of people that we can respond, so many ways we can respond to transitions. Yeah, it's the latter one. Uh, I think you pegged that, that correctly. But just for the sake of uh, making sure I've got uh, understood what you said, would, how about if you tell me the first way in which you were looking about that? How about repeating that so we're uh, make sure we're uh, talking about the same thing? Right. So I, I think sometimes when I'm coaching and mentoring early career faculty members and we're having conversations about the next steps, they tend to think, oh, I could never do that. It's a social comparison thing where they will, I'm not talking maybe necessarily about promoting to the next level of, say, from an assistant to an associate professor to a professor, because this is a different conversation, but we can assume that some the faculty members understand what are the required elements of getting from assistant to associate professor. So say, let's put that kind of a transition aside. I'm thinking a transition to a new leadership role or running something. And they'd say, oh, I, I could never do that. Or I don't want to do that thing because that sounds, that looks like a horrible job. It's too much responsibility. It's too complicated. It's a lot of the stuff I don't want to do, or I'm not skilled at doing. So sometimes faculty members will dismiss an opportunity based on their assumptions of what it is and that it must always be that way. Versus saying, well, Kim, are there other ways of seeing and framing and changing that position? Could you take over the fill in the blank fellowship, being the fellowship director, running a new center, creating a new program and do it differently? Could you maybe take Peter Denson's job and get a team of rivals together and turf things and triage things and reimagine? And then you kind of open your eyes and go, oh. It's not what is, but what could be. So that's kind of the flip side, I'm thinking. But I have seen the other complete opposite end of the spectrum where people think, oh, I can do that, no problem. And I'm thinking, no, you can't. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I kind of agree with that. And, but yet there are parts of it that maybe um, we differ a little bit. You know, I, I, I like to frame this as you have as, you know, what's it like not talking about the the process by which you got there, but oh, you decide to take this new position, okay? That's the one I usually deal with. But I want to make the point that the reason I think transition theory has been helpful to me is because so much of what I did early on is being an advocate for students. And I see students come to to medical school, and in this first year, they just 
have this self-doubt and what am I doing here? Am I really uh, a fake physician, blah, blah, blah. And yet they're all very well qualified. And, and, and that's, that, it's a, that's a transformational change for them because they're, they're, even though they're still a student and that's what they look at themselves as, I was a student in college and now I'm a student in medical school. It's the same thing. Well, but it's not the same thing. And getting them to recognize that, that, that part of what they're feeling and what they're going through when they're struggling is this transformational change. Yeah. And that link is the same kind of link that we talk about. So, you know, Paul, Paul Rothman would differ in this, and he and I would argue about it. But when he came from, uh, from Columbia to Iowa, he's changing his geographical and physical environment. He was moving up from being a division director in pulmonology to becoming uh, chair of the Department of Medicine. And then while he was at Iowa, he went from being the department chair to being the dean. So each of those was a change. One was a change in geography and a big change in responsibility. But he went to a new institution and had to learn that stuff there. And then he knew the stuff and he became the next level. Some people, so at some point, just focusing on Paul for a minute, he he decided he was in a leadership track. And how he got there, you know, is a little bit about what you were hinting at, but that's not really what I'm um, I'm focusing on. We we could talk about that, but I'm I'm talking about people like Paul who have already made their decision. You don't have to uh, try and say, have you considered the possibility that you would uh, might want to be a program director. But once they make that decision, this process we're talking about is the same. Mm -hmm. You know, the elements of it are the same. The details will change with each individual. And so my view of this is just using Paul as an example. He left, he he was an urbanite. He left New York City, big high level institution, and he moved halfway across the country to a university that is in a rural state and in a, uh, an Iowa city uh, with the students present is maybe 100,000 plus. That's a huge change. And, you know, he's got a, and so as he makes that change and his family makes the change with him, he had young kids and he looks back, there's sort of a sadness part. That's the ending part. Mm-hmm. Uh, gee, life was really good, and I could go to the, you know, the opera or whatever it might he might have liked to have done. I had good friends there, you know, a lot of roots. I had my research group there, and so there, there is often not recognized that because it's swept up into this new position that you're leaving something, and with that, you you develop memories, but your memories are often sort of poignant, if mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, you're. Can I pause you there, Dr. Denson? You're reminding me of the importance of appreciating that ending phase and not giving it short shrift for a number of reasons. And one was when I left Rush University Medical Center in Chicago to come here to Baltimore nine years ago. My mentor Dennis Evans, who ran the the Rush Institute for Healthy Healthy Aging, I told him, and then my. Ali Keshavarzi and a gastroenterologist, another great mentor, boss of mine. I said, I don't want a big fuss. I don't want a big fuss. I'm just going to like slide out the back door and I don't want to 
have a thing. And, and I kept saying that over and over and over again. And finally, Dennis said to me, Kim, it's not about you. And I was like, what do you mean? If you're having a party, it's about me. I don't want it. He said, no, you're, you're missing it. He said, it's about everybody else. Endings are about, you know, everybody else wants, it's not only your ending, it's their ending. And I, and I was like, well, you people don't care. I don't, what are you talking about? He, and he really got me to appreciate that, that Kim, it's almost like you're being selfish to slide out the back door because you're thinking it's about you. It's not only about you, other people feel a need for closure and ending. Yeah, I, Kim, I, I couldn't agree more. And you, you phrased it uh, so um, uh, aptly because uh, of the way in which, for me, in, for the way in which you were saying it's not about you. And there is that part about people grieving your loss. If, if you're, you know, hopefully meant something that people in the programs you built. But, there, but the phrase, it's not about you, when you move to this new position of higher leadership, a lot of people think that, you know, again, it's like the student. I'm still a student. I'm still the same old person. I still have my lab. But this leadership role requires that it can't be about you. Um, it, it can be. But it's not usually a, a highly successful approach to a significant leadership role where where you your success is highly dependent on other people, you know, you're promoting other people's success. And um, and the more you can do that, the more success you have. And yet people, because of the way institutions sometimes select leaders, that recognition can uh, not, can come late. And that's where transition theory coaching makes a difference. Now, some people, you know, they get this, they're well prepared for it for whatever reasons, and they just slide through that. Paul was one of those individuals, but that's not always the case. And so recognizing this brings you to that next level of uncertainty. And, and you know, this can be really stressful uh, for whatever person you're, you're, you're working with, whether it be student or being faculty or, or leader, because they often don't recognize their, their personal resistance to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they know that this is how they got there. And um, they want to do just more of the things that brought them success. And that may not work in this thing. And so the resistance to change, this is the way I've always done it. And then there can be institutional resistance and because they're not aware of the culture and they, you know, uh, I can't tell you the number of times previous dean used to say, well, at X institution, this is the way we did it. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll tolerate that for a little bit. But after a while, I said, you're not at X institution. And by the way, this is the way we do it. And one is not necessarily better than any other, but you need to recognize that and not recognize the culture. And to the extent that you don't, then the stress that can be uh, great. And then everybody has blind thoughts. This is the way I think this this looks like. And everybody else thinks it looks like that way too. Well, that's uh, that's really not the, not the case. And so then comes this period where they recognize this isn't going well. And 
I have a need to change because what got me here is not maybe going to get me where I want to go. And at this point in time, you know, this is what I'm working with people. I, I often call up, you know, try to imagine, you know, here you are, you've come to this wintry stream and you're on one bank of that stream and then the ice goes out and then you get a little thin ice in the middle and you go across and, you know, you need to get to the other side. Um, how are you going to do that? And out there's a sign that says danger, thin ice. And so you walk out on the ice and boom, you're gone. Hmm. Um, so if you keep walking out on the ice all the time, each time you're going to go down, but you need to adapt. And how do you do that? You kind of spread your weight over the biggest surface areas you can. And that spreading of the weight gets you across that thin ice. And so it's sort of a metaphor for uh, how, to, how to get there. Different people go through this. Uh, different people recognize this. Uh, and it, when you're working with somebody uh, who's struggling, uh, this is the part, the uncertainty part that I feel uh, needs to be, uh, deserves a lot of attention when you're working with somebody. What has your experience been? Well, I, Peter, I love what you're saying because I'm putting a, I just got certified as a coach through the College of Executive Coaching. And here at Hopkins, I'm starting some new group, small group coaching program mm -hmm. to try to reach as many faculty as possible since we have over 3,000 faculty here at Hopkins and we can't do one-on-one -on -one with everybody. But I'm reading and rereading this book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Right, I've never seen that. By That's Marshall Goldsmith. So when you, Peter, said that, yeah, that this how successful people become even more successful. And I, I love this, you know, the, the, you're stressing this uncertainty because I think many of us, especially in academic medicine, do and can argue coherently that, well, you're going to tell me that I, what I'm doing is not going to get me to the next level when by all objective measures, look at my CV, look at my hundreds of papers, look at my dozens of grants. I've been funded my entire career and all my awards and accolades. Naturally, what I've been doing in the past has obviously worked for me. Thank you very much. And then there's that moment when there's the next opportunity, there's a transition. And that's where we see the the. Peter principle, people, you know, get to their their, their level of uh, incompetence because they're not going to get promoted anymore because they reached the top of their own. They've, they've leveled out because they don't they failed to recognize what got them there is not going to get into the next step. So that uncertainty, that that doubt, that moment of, whoa, wait a minute, is there something more to learn here about me? or them, or this culture, or this institution, or this, this, this uh, challenge is, is the moment of, okay, you know, game on. Are you going to grow? And as you gave that beautiful, beautiful metaphor of the, the ice, I'm imagining, you know, someone just saying, you know, don't jump up and down by yourself and fall through, but rather spread out. And to me, I was picturing that kind of the tendrils of, getting thinner and broader and and get asking for help and recognizing that there's wisdom out there and that it's not all inside. And I don't know, does that sound crazy? 
No, I, I think you've got it, you know, and it sort of leads right to the next phase. But I, I would I would like to say that, you know, as part of what you're, you know, I, I just love um, the way you encapsulated, but, but um, you know, part of that, you know, to get to that next phase is that recognition uh, that change is needed and, and that produces a motivation in oneself without the person's desire to change you know, there it's going to be the Peter principle, and 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 I think that's a lot a lot of what you're saying. And once that person recognizes that, they, you know, they can be filled with a sense of curiosity and excitement, and then embracing this new journey. You know, and and that's where their excitement and fun comes, and where their great growth grows. And as a coach, you can at that point just sort of begin to put a few things in front of them and then you just stand back and, and let the world take over and say, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> talk about these, uh, you know, tendrils reaching out these uh, neurons with all their, their touching base with different neurons. Um, I think that's um, uh, really an important aspect of uh, the strategies that you can use with somebody as they're moving out of the uncertainty into this last phase of a new new beginning. And, and that's just connections, you know, you you connecting to your, yes, you're head of a department or you're head of uh, a residency program, but there's so much you can learn from your peers who are heads of other departments or other residency programs, whatnot. And, and embracing those connections and not as opposed to, gee, I'm going to be a better department head than you, you know, kind of thing. And and there's so much wisdom there. And then that uh, allows you to adapt and create. And of course, you know, no leadership position, uh, no leader is is highly effective unless they can communicate uh, clearly about where they want to go and get people excited on that journey. But at the institutional level, um, you know, um, I, I've seen this too, where people hire, okay, uh, we want, uh, I, I saw one example of this that was kind of um, chattering, if you will. And they hired uh, somebody uh, and, you know, who knows exactly why the person was hired. But in this case, it would be a diversity of some sort. And they hire a person and say, okay, now, you're there, you're our diverse person, and we expect you to succeed. And then they kind of walk away. And, and that's, I think institutions need to recognize that what they just did was create a transition. And yes, the person needs to make that transition, but there are things that the institution should do to help that transition. And after all, nobody wins when you hire somebody and then you have to do repeat the search in another six months or a year. So recognition that you put them in a transition and then you can facilitate these connections and the mentoring or whatever those things are. But both sides have things that they can contribute. And we all want, you know, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a, it can be a, a terrific waste of institutional time, effort and resources if you don't uh, recognize this and invest in, in people's success uh, right from the beginning. After they've made this transition and you're pretty sure then, you can go on to the next person, but yeah. what are you? What are your thoughts on that? Well, Peter, this is this is so interesting because 
I think I'm, I'm imagining what you're saying. This this institutional investment is not it's not even at like a search committee one off agenda item level. This is to me. This investment, it seems to me that it needs to become ongoing, built into the culture of an institution that because this is probably a non-recursive model that even within a person ending uncertainty beginning that there, there are feedback loops there that keep going and going and going. So that one, it's not like you said, you get a leader, you recognize a transition, you prepare, you invest, you coach, and then, okay, good, wipe my hands, next leader. Yes and no, because that leader, uh, there's a maintenance. You ha- I, There's a process that is ongoing because that leader will be faced with, in the course of the new job, all their endings. There could be global pandemics. There are financial crises, there, there's faculty turnover, there are all kinds of endings and beginnings. So we can't just like take our finger off of that and turn away from that kid. Well, that kid graduated from high school, so he's done. Next, you know, that, that daughter just finished college. She's good. Check her off the box. It's a constant scoping and scanning and making sure that appreciating that nothing is ever done, we're always transitioning, right? Yes, and and I like the way you talked about it as uh, an institutional culture. So you can have an institutional culture like we've been talking about, which is invested in the success of its leaders. And as those people make their transition and they help the next level come around. And as you said, it's a constant positive loop feedback. And and so that's an exciting culture team to be part of. Um, and it's a very attractive way of recruiting people because we, we have here these people and you can point to their success. Uh, you're right that uh, any kind of level, um, any kind of institutional culture like that, it's a higher order of organization and requires constant effort to maintain. You can't get there and just say, it'll be this way forever. But at the other end, you know, there's institutional cultures, you know, these are spectrum ends there, you know, there's a lot in between them, but but the other end of that is, uh, okay, uh, sink or swim. Mm. Here you are, deep water. If you make it through, you'll be a great leader and we'll love you to be here forever. (laughs) <laughs> but if you don't make it through, we'll just find somebody else to jump in the deep end. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and we're going to make it interesting. We're going to chum the waters and not give you a life preserver. So you better start a swimming because here comes the chum. <laughs> and, and these occurs, you know, we're talking about institutional cultures, but these occur at, at micro levels all the way down the institution. So it could be the head of the president of the institution, it could be the dean, but it could be a department head, it could be a division director. And, 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 and so even within a, 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 a deep end kind of an institutional culture, you'll find departments, say, in which they recognize this positive feedback loop. And then you'll find that faculty satisfaction in that department is really high. And somebody who's really curious would say, well, what makes that department so, so why are the faculty so happy and what makes them so successful? And, you know, there, there are books written about this and, and it makes, 
makes for uh, great reading if you're you're interested in this. And you know, I boil it down to I use the acronym ACRE. So A would be autonomy, particularly faculty, you know, medical faculty. You know, it may be changing, but they value autonomy and nobody telling them what to do. Um, C is a community of like-minded individuals to work with, similar goals. R, you know, R is really one of the most interesting things to me. It's reward. And what I observe in what this particular book was writing about was people like getting institutional recognition. You just got the Institutional uh, Mentoring Award, okay? Distinguished Mentor Award. means a great deal. You can put it on your CV. But not everybody is ever going to get that. And so recognizing everybody through little rewards, and the little rewards are the value of them is over underestimated. So you've got a faculty meeting, say, and you happen to know that this faculty member's kid just scored a touchdown in the local high school game, and, and you give them a shout out. Yeah. You know, that means so much and goes so far. It doesn't get on their CV but it makes that cohesiveness. And then uh, E is efficacy, the sense of what you're doing makes a difference. So this is beyond transition, but I, but it, it's in that little area, you'll find that. So I'm sorry I got carried away. No, I love getting carried away. That's my theme is to get carried away. Aut- acre, autonomy, community, reward, and efficacy. That to me would help was would be a good way to remember helping people maintain that curiosity and that that continuous ability to regenerate and and pivot and um, inspire and encourage remembering all those elements. I think that's a that's a good way. Good remembering acre. Love it. You know, I I, I want to ask you one more question before we leave, if you don't mind. I'm thinking about the you know, we're talking about transition with leaders, and I always want to try to get down to the grassroots of maybe early career faculty members. You know, how can we, what would you tell that early career faculty member about transitions and how they recognize a value in, say, they get their first grant, they get their K award, or they get that first paper? What should they know, or they get promoted from assistant to associate? How would this ending uncertainty beginning concept apply to a faculty member just starting off their career? What can they glean from this to help sustain them over this really challenging career choice? I'm envisioning a junior faculty member, somebody brand new going, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not really transitioning. I'm just plugging along and doing my thing. I'm just doing what's expected of me. And I might say, if I'm Peter Denson, well, that's true. You are, you know, that's what your job responsibility is to generate RVUs, get papers, get grants, create programs, teach fellows, teach trainees, and recognize, take a moment and recognize that every paper, every grant application that even just gets submitted, every achievement Every son who gets the, the scores, the, the touchdown, or the daughter who performs in the violin recital, those every event signifies a transition, almost kind of um, you know, like a win list, like a like a an accomplishment, as you're saying, like a reward. Like take a moment to not just 
quickly breeze through it and disregard it or discount it as, well, of course I did that. That's what I'm supposed to do. Rather recognize that as an ending. I did that. I finished that study. I published that paper. Now what's going to happen next? What if I get the grant? What if I get another paper? What if I get that new division title? And then how I would see myself as moving along or my son is moving along or my daughter is moving along. I'm just kind of putting this, you know, into a different stages or levels of. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a really interesting um, question. The one that I have not really considered. And, and so in thinking about it on the spot, thank you very much for putting me on the spot. <laughs> That, you know, I think back to where I was when that, you know, what what were what was happening the day that, and I kind of remember this that I suddenly decided I wasn't just a, this faculty member chugging along, you know. So so I would say maybe the one thing that I haven't thought about before is that when you make a transition, you're actually. You know, it's kind of like what you wrote me about, or I, I listened to on one of your podcasts. It's like, uh, no is a decision. Mm-hmm. Yes is a responsibility. So in this case, getting your grant is a yes, because with it comes a responsibility uh, to uh, actually do the work in mm-hmm. order to get your grant refunded or to answer this question and get people to work with you, get another grant. So there is this, and and if you don't satisfy that responsibility, then you're not going to move forward. And so your, if you will, let's say a division director who's been working with you all this time is is pointing these things out and, and usually not directly, but in some ways, at least in my case, rather subtly saying, you know, there is this responsibility here. And one of the responsibility in, in my case was uh, after I'd gotten to associate professor and had, things seemed to be on a uh, you know stable plane. I was getting grants. Da da da. They pointed out to me in a somewhat subtle way is you know you got those grants as an assistant professor because people at the associate professor and the professor level were doing more clinical work so that you didn't have to do it and you had this time. And now it's your time to take on some of that teaching load, program direction, da da da, uh, so that the new people we just brought on will have that protected time to succeed with their research. And so then I was sort of transitioning not only from assistant to associate professor, but in the responsibilities that I was expected to come up and then the recognition of that. And then that was the moment when I said, well, I can lead that program, you know, that, I can do at least as well as that person. Yeah. And so that's how it started. I don't know if that's what you're aiming at, but, yeah. you know, I love that story. I love it. I just, it, to me, I guess it, getting really deep and philosophical and I, and I try not to do that, but I almost sometimes can't help myself as I imagine, I imagine that, you know, like you did in retrospect, that our son who scores a touchdown, the daughter who performs well in the violin concert, that there's a moment maybe either consciously or unconsciously where that child makes a decision. I'm a touchdown scorer. I score touchdowns. I do well uh, playing my violin. 
I get grants. I write papers. Therefore, I am this thing. And that period of uncertainty is, do I want to be doing that? What kind of pressure is it? Do I have to now score two touchdowns to be good? Do I have to score, you know, perform well in three concerts? And now we start playing this game with ourselves to outperform ourselves. And maybe that's where the uncertainty comes. And then, you know. I think in addition to that, Kim, you know, is, uh, and I don't want to take the touchdown thing too far, but, but when you, when you score that first touchdown, it's all about me. I broke through, I scored six points and that was me. But when you move to the three touchdown level or whatever, if you do that, you know, it's not just about me, it's my responsibility and it's about the team. Yes. You're going to win a game that the multiple people working on a grant or paper, blah, blah, blah. And, and that, that is the personal uncertainty transition that we're talking about is moving outside yourself to looking at the world from how other people might look at it and trying to work with it. And for me, that's where the fun is. Peter Denson, I think we should end there because that this has been a really great session. And Rachel Salas is right. Coaching leadership, boy, you've got that nailed. All about transitions. Uh, see, we got great, we got great guests here on the podcast, folks. If you want to be a guest uh, or know somebody that we should talk to on the podcast, please email me at facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. That's facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. Peter Denson, would you like to leave us with any parting thoughts about this great session today? Again, thanks so much. Well, Kim, yeah, I have to say, I didn't know what this would be like. I've never done anything like this. It was transitioned for me. And I was looking at the clock on my computer at, at 1210. And I was thinking, oh, my God, how are we going to get to 1220? And here we are, 1240. And I started <laughs> having fun. And I had a great time and great getting to know you. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me to your show. And I hope uh, I hope we'll have a chance to connect again in the future. Dr. Denson, this has been wonderful. I know everybody listening that you have learned so much from this, as have I. And please come back on the Faculty Factory podcast. And I'm going to drag Dr. Denson back here and have another talk sometime. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Kim. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.